Welcome to Boston Confidential, Beantown's true crime podcast. Boston is a great city, but there's more to it than the Freedom Trail and Fenway Park. There's a startling underbelly to the city, and Boston Confidential will take you on a guided tour of the hub of the universe, Boston, Massachusetts. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Boston Confidential. My name's Barry McGuire, and I'm your host. I'm a 20-year private investigator on the streets of Boston. And I help run a company called Impact Due Diligence Investigations. If you need anything in terms of investigative services, feel free to contact me at Impact. If I can't help you personally, I'll certainly direct you to the right person or agency. Hey, everybody, welcome back to Boston Confidential. Big response from the first episode on the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum heist of 1990. Guys, I think I need to apologize a little bit. There's something I left out about the timeline. I know we didn't get through the entire robbery in the first episode, and I'll take you through that briefly. But much like when I heard about this case in 1990, it all came down to the security guards, right? Because they're the linchpin in this heist. Because these two guys show up as cops knocking on the door, And what happens if the security guy says, okay, what are your badge numbers? I'm going to call the BPD and I'll let you right in. I'm sorry you'd be an ass, but this is our security protocol. And it was their security protocol. But what I neglected to mention during the timeline of the robbery during the first episode was that at 1.24 a.m. on the 18th, remember the intrusion started on March 17th. This whole score started on March 17th in the late hours. And then it went into the early morning of March 18th. So at 1.24, the police arrive at the door. But just prior to that, and this is my mistake, I neglected to tell you about this. Just a few minutes prior to that, Rick Abath opens the side door, which is again against protocol. And why does he open it? Well, the speculation is, and it's a pretty good theory, that's the signal that Rick will now take control of the guard booth inside the palace door side of the museum. What had happened just before that, the other security guard was on rounds, but now it was Rick's turn to come back into the security booth and it'd sit there. Then this other security guard does other things. But Rick opens that door, and it's logged on the alarm system. Nobody else does this. No other guard. It's against protocol. There's no reason for it. But it's thought that this could be a signal to the robbers, because what would happen if they had done this 15 minutes prior? That other security guard could threaten them and say, I'm going to call the BPD. Give me your badge numbers. And then the whole job is blown. Would these guys, these guys who were professional enough to dress up in actual BPD uniforms, would they risk that? So they needed a signal from Rick to know that at a minimum, they're going to be buzzed in, right? And they were buzzed in. It's kind of like a bullpen. The first door gets buzzed open, you come in, that door closes, and now you're standing before the security desk. And to move from that spot, the security guard has to buzz you in to another door. And that's exactly what happens at 124. The fake Boston cops buzz the door, you know, bodge their way in, and it's off to the races. And they needed an inside man for that. Make no mistake. 
This wasn't pure chance. They knew what was going to happen. So the bandits get in, they tie up the two security guards. And again, something else that just stands out like a sore thumb to me is take a look at the pictures of Rick Abath, how he's tied up. I could have gotten out of that in, I don't know, 35 seconds. And I think he may have been handcuffed to a pole or behind his back. But to be honest, I think it was all just duct tape. I saw one roll of duct tape, like one sliver of duct tape right near his ankles. You could have gotten out of that pretty quickly, pretty quickly. And he's going to say, yeah, I was scared. They told me they were going to kill me, all that. I just don't buy it. I don't buy it, guys. Look at the pictures. So at that point, they go through the robbery. They take the 13 masterpieces and some odd items that I think the thieves were just grabbing for themselves. This Napoleonic eagle. I don't think they were directed to take that, but they probably thought it was gold. It wasn't. It was bronze. It was still a beautiful piece. But there's a lot of strange things about this robbery, right? If you're going to do this robbery, why not have somebody come in behind you with a U-Haul truck? right? It's, you know, St. Patrick's Day or the day after, morning after. And you could have taken all of that stuff. And they had spent 81 minutes in there. And that gives you 13 paintings. But what if you had just a few more guys and you're not cutting it out, right? You wouldn't have to cut out the storm on the Sea of Galilee, which is a painting that is five feet by four feet. You could have taken it off the wall and put it in the U-Haul. You know, it could be suspicious that there's a U-Haul truck on Palace Road, but you pull it right up to the door. I don't know. If you got 10 minutes, 15 minutes, you load all that stuff up and go. There's a lot of real question marks on this case, but the biggest question mark in my mind here is Rick Abath. And I had been racking my brain. How does it go? How does he get corrupted, right? I think if you go back, when I mentioned this in the first episode, the Rossetti gang. If you remember, I think it was 80-something, early 80s or mid-80s, but the FBI walks into the Isabella Stewart Garden Museum and talks to the security director at the time. And he said, these two guys, one by the last name of Rossetti, and it was known as the Rossetti gang, was going to set off a smoke alarm in the courtyard of the museum and take some very valuable paintings and hit the bricks. But what I think that shows is that this score was in the works for so very long. And if you watch the special on Netflix, I know I'm kind of contradicting myself, what I had said previously about Netflix specials, but this show was actually pretty good. It's called This is a Robbery, and it's by Colin and his brother, Barnacle. I don't know the other brother's name. And I said it was okay last time. It's actually very good. I have to go back on that. I have to say this is a very good Netflix special, at least in my mind. Review it and let me know what you think on it. But I thought it was excellent. It provides a supreme timeline here. My only real criticism is they jump around a little bit and that can get a little confusing. But, you know, it's 1990, so you have to condense a little bit, I know. But check it out. It's an excellent special. So just to get back to Rick Abath, right? 
look at him in totality. He had only been a security guard at the Gardner for a year. And he had put in his resignation just a little while before, and he was ready to be done with the museum altogether. Does that raise some red flags? But more than that, I had a thought while I was watching this the second time is maybe he's a plant. Maybe he was put there the year before, right? And they're just waiting for an opportunity. And the security force was such a joke at this place. You know, the New Year's Eve before this happened, I guess it would have been, I don't know, 89 into 90. Rick let some of his friends in to have a New Year's Eve party at midnight, and they had a party, and Rick was taking all kinds of hallucinogens and all this, and you don't get fired for that. Can you imagine that? So... It's just a farce. The security force is a farce. So could have Rick been placed there, right? How does he come into contact with the gang that does this? He's a rock and roller. He's a drinker. He does drugs recreationally. Those are all places you could intersect with organized crime. And make no mistake, this crime is no crime of opportunity. This was a year in the making or years in the making. And if you listen to this special on HBO, this is a robbery, Martin Lepo, the attorney for several of the suspects in this case, has stated, I've had several people come in and out of the office saying, yeah, we've been casing that place for years. We just never pulled it off. It was that easy, guys. It was glaringly obvious. So what would it take to corrupt Rick, right? He's broke. You know, he follows the Grateful Dead around. He's not super ambitious. Little bit of money, I don't know, 50 grand, 25 grand up front, 50 grand later. And once he accepts that money and he starts spending it, you say, hey, okay, now this has to go the right way, Rick, or we're going to put you in the trunk of a car. And they just point to the newspaper, say, that's how this goes, Rick. Now you're in on the game. And I think he gets scared, but he goes through with the plan. And hence, that's why he opened that door as a signal. There's no other reason. The reporter, Steve Kirkjanian, I think I'm pronouncing that correctly, worked for the Boston Globe. He was a member of the Spotlight team. And he did a hell of a lot of work on this. He interviewed the other guards, and nobody opens that side door. It's never been done. He asked Rick about it in an interview, and Rick says, yeah, I did it all the time. Doesn't really explain why he did it. Was it to get some air? Was it some other reason? It's just very suspicious, right? I think it's a signal that your inside man, Rick, is going to be taking over the desk, and the other goofball security guard is going to be doing his rounds. So they wait a predetermined amount of time, and they get buzzed in. And that's it. And in my mind's eye, I can see them scoping out who are we going to try to corrupt in this chain of security, right? And they see this guy, long hair, rock and roller, and maybe he likes the weed. They follow him around. They follow him from the Fenway, the neighborhood where the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum is. And I think the guy lives in Brighton. They go back there. It's a big party house. So they think, geez. 
you know, this guy's probably going to need some money. He likes to drink. He likes to smoke weed. He likes to party. This is our guy. So I think I stated in the first episode that there's two theories here. It's actually kind of one theory, kind of co-mingled. But the first part of it involves Miles Connor. And I think I described him as a master thief. He had done a huge score out west with some Wyatt paintings. I'm not super familiar with that artist. But in the 70s, he also stole a Rembrandt from the Museum of Fine Arts. And there was some gunfire during that robbery, but he got away. And when he was ultimately arrested, he gave the Rembrandt back and they reduced his sentence. He had been serving two four-year sentences and they combined it into one. So pretty soon he would have been getting out of jail. But Miles was in jail during the Gardner heist. And so was his henchman, Youngsworth. Now, anytime there's any type of art robbery in Massachusetts or the surrounding area, probably the whole East Coast, Miles Connor's name comes up. And I, I got to tell you, I think Miles Connor likes that a little bit. He is so connected to art thievery that when this happened, they sent corrections officers to make sure Miles was still in his cell. That's a rumor, but it's kind of funny, and it shows how much law enforcement considers him an expert art thief. And I think what happened here, I'll tell you the whole story, what I think happened, and there's a lot of twists and turns. In that special, it goes back and forth a little bit. I'm going to try to give it to you in a linear fashion. And I'll do that in just a little bit. But what I think happens with Miles is everybody in that world had cased the Isabella Stewart Gardner thing, and he was probably kicking himself that he hadn't done it. But the Boston underworld is a very small place, and these guys like to talk. But what I think happened here, originally this Rossetti gang is thinking about this score, and they're going to steal the Vermeer, they're going to steal the Sargent paintings and set off a smoke bomb and all that, and that was going to be the diversion to rob the museum. And I think that level of planning was still going on. I believe some of those guys got arrested for this, at least according to the special, this is a robbery. So according to this is a robbery, and I wanted to direct you as well to somebody else who's done a hell of a job on this, Bob Ward of Fox 25. Just Google Bob Ward, Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum, it'll come right up. He's done some pretty in-depth work on it, too. That's where a lot of this research comes from as well. So, guys, I'm definitely going to try to give this to you in linear fashion, but I wanted to talk to you a little bit about the investigation before we went through this whole linear cycle. So, immediately after the robbery, this hits the newspapers like you wouldn't believe. And this is national and international news. So, the FBI gets involved pretty quickly. BPD is there. But honestly, just looking at the photographs, the way the FBI and the Boston police gathered this evidence was like the Keystone Cops. There was tape, which would have had DNA hadn't come to fruition yet, but it would likely have had fingerprints, perhaps. They throw that away. There's no secure crime scene. 
if you ever see crime scenes today, you see cops signing in saying, I'm here present at this time. And there's none of that. There's doors open in the museum. The FBI doesn't know if the Boston police opened it, the security guards opened it, or the robbers opened it. So they really just don't know. And the cameras inside the building were like non-existent, right? So it's just forensically horrible investigation. And if you watch the special, this is a robbery, pretty quickly, the security director or one of the board members of the Isabella Stewart Garden Museum said it became apparent that the FBI was simply not interested in this case. And that may have more to do with the fact that there was a pending mafia case. They were working on a massive RICO case for the Boston and Rhode Island mobs. And that would soon hit the newspapers. They rounded everybody up. It was a big investigation. A lot of key mafia people went down on it. But that kind of left the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum heist case in the lurch. There just were no eyes on it. And it did go cold pretty quickly. You know, I don't know what happened in those early days. But they probably were trying to figure out who could have done this. Because the BPD uniforms... The security got, there was a lot to look into, but locally, the level of professionalism, I think you could have eliminated some group of suspects, right? This was not a happenstance. This was a well-planned art heist with people dressed as cops. So naturally, you look to the Miles Connors type, the Youngworth type, and I'll tell you about another guy coming up, but man, they just didn't seem super interested in it. And the BPD seemed to be placated by having the FBI involved. They could point the finger to them, I guess. But either way, just a shitty investigation, really. All right, so imagine, if you will, it's March 18th, 1990. And I think it was about 3 a.m. or 3.30 where the robbers were done. They loaded up the hatchback and drove away like they were going out for a weekend in New Hampshire. And these paintings, these masterpieces go into the ether, I guess. So the FBI, and in this special, this is a robbery on Netflix, they don't really know exactly where the paintings went from the time they left the door of the museum, actually till today, but you have to speculate a little bit. And this is where some new players come in. And if you watch the special everybody almost to a man says, geez, who could have done this? Kind of like what we're doing here today. And the focus comes to Bobby Donati. I believe he was a made member of the mob and he worked in a faction of the mob. And I want to tell you a little bit about that. There were two factions, one led by Cadillac Frank Salemi and one led by Vinny the Animal Ferrara. Vinny Ferrara was a friend of Bobby Donati. Donati was actually a driver for Vinny the Animal Ferrara, okay? Bobby Donati was also friends with Miles Connor, and I think that's where the idea of this heist comes from. And originally it came from that other gang in the 80s when the FBI came to the museum and said, somebody is trying to rob your museum. That was the Rossetti gang. Donati has some connections to that as well. But he was very close with Vinnie Ferrara. Vinnie Ferrara gets arrested 
in some type of RICO indictment, and it's looking bad for him and, you know, some of his other crew as well. And Bobby Donati had known from Miles Connor when Miles Connor had stolen that Rembrandt from the Museum of Fine Arts that if you give the art back, the feds will let you out of prison. I also think Miles probably tipped him off to that score at the Gardner Museum. And again, I think crooks, mobsters, whomever, were kicking this score around for years. They were salivating over it. One of the only problems is it's hard to sell that stuff, right? You can't sell it in the regular market. It would have to be in a dark market. When this originally hit the press, people thought those paintings, they gave them a shopping list. This is what I want. And the person who wanted them stolen would display them in their own home or whatever. But I think Miles Connor put the bug in Donati's ear. Vinnie Ferrara gets arrested and they're fighting, right? And this is in the this special on Netflix as well. Check it out. Donati says, listen, I got to get Vinnie out of jail because we're not going to win this war with Cadillac Frank Salemi unless Vinnie's on the street. And that's a pretty astute observation. I think that was true. So it's so strange to me in this case that the motivation in the heist is really not money. It's to get these guys out of jail. But I bet my life on it that they didn't tell the people who actually pulled the score that was the plan. So Donati is in the mafia and he goes to Carlo Merlino, who's running some type of crazy business out of a garage in Dorchester, Massachusetts. I think it's called FTC or something like that. But it's a front. It's a gambling ring. They're stolen goods. Everything went out of the FBI and the state police had surveillance on it almost all the time. So it's believed that Merlino set up his crew, which consisted of several non-made members of organized crime. What a lot of people don't understand is you don't have to be a made member of La Casa Nostra to work with La Casa Nostra. You know what I mean? You can be an associate. So they were non-Italians, but they were supreme criminals, right? And the crew that Merlino led, Merlino was a made member of the mob, I believe, out of the North End. But Carlo Merlino led a pretty dastardly crew. The cops were looking at him for homicide down in Plymouth County, south of Boston. So just before the heist, Steve Kirkjanian, the reporter from The Globe, developed a source who had told him that Bobby Donati was seen, I believe it was in East Boston or Revere, Massachusetts, with two Boston police uniforms. So he passes those on, and he gives the word to Molino to hit the Stewart Garden Museum, probably gives him a bit of a shopping list, and they were probably told, yeah, you can take whatever you want. And I bet they put him in touch with the inside man, guys. And again, this Merlino crew was pretty active. They were allegedly responsible for robbing Cheers, the bar Cheers, on Beacon Hill in Boston. And I don't know if anybody knows this outside of Boston. The real name of Cheers is called the Bull and Finch Pub. It's kind of a tourist trap. If you ever come into town, you might want to stay away. It's not super impressive. But one of these guys in Merlino's crew robs that, and I think they got about 50000 in cash out of it, which would be equivalent to about a hundred grand today, I think. 
So they were super active. They would steal anything that wasn't nailed down. They were moving a ton of coke. Nobody had a legitimate job. It was crazy. So Merlino's crew consisted of Merlino, who acted kind of as the Don or the captain of it, Charlie Pappas, who was one of the guys wanted for murder in Plymouth County, David Turner, George Reisfelder, and Lenny DeMusio. And that's the crew that they believe was set up to take down the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum. It's believed at least George Reisfelder was one of the actual robbers, one of the guys dressed as a cop. The other one is believed to be either Lenny DeMusio or David Turner. These are the people who actually went into the museum to rob it physically. And after that, it's believed that the loot may have went to TRC Auto in Dorchester. That's pure speculation because nobody really knows where it went immediately after. I mean, we don't know where it is today. So Bobby Donati is ecstatic, and now he thinks he's going to be able to get his friend Vinnie Ferrara out of jail, and they may survive this mob war. But Donati thinks he needs to let the heat die down a little bit. But he seems to be gotten caught up in this robbery and he doesn't remember that they're at war with Cadillac Frank Salemi, who has the backing, I believe, of Rhode Island of the Patriarca crime family down there. So while Donati's waiting for the heat to die down and he was going to contact the FBI or have somebody contact them and say, hey, we're going to give these paintings back. You got to let Vinny out of prison. I don't think the FBI would have done that. Vinny Ferrara is a tough character some murders under his belt and all that. But time's up for Bobby Donati. Before he could get to the FBI, somebody attacked him at his house, and they say he was actually beheaded and stuffed in the trunk of his car. From there, the FBI seems to believe, in it, and it's delineated in the show, This is a Robbery. They believe the artwork went to another mobster, Robert Garente, who was kind of in the same crew with Donati, and they were very good friends, lifelong friends, actually. And Garenti holds on to the paintings for a while, and the FBI is trying to ramp up a case against Garenti for several other things. So from there, they say the artwork goes from Robert Garenti to a friend of his by the name of Robert Gentile, or Gentili, out of Connecticut. And this is where the story kind of loses me a little bit. I just don't know. They didn't seem to have a huge connection. They were friendly. I don't know. Does Bobby Garenti say, geez, I've got to get rid of this stuff, and Garenti's wife's involved. They say the paintings for a time were at Garenti's house in Maine, a vacation home in Maine. But in another strange twist, Bobby Garenti drops dead. He was a big, heavy guy, and he had some health problems, and he ends up dropping dead. And that's kind of where this case goes. It, it's kind of left with Bobby Gentile or Gentile out of Connecticut. I don't know. The connection up until giving it to the guy in Connecticut, you kind of have me. But there are a couple other things in the Netflix special, This is a Robbery. They say George Reisfelder put the Shea Tortoni on his bedroom wall. And come on, guys. Carlo Merlino is the boss of this. And if anybody ever heard of this guy putting one of these stolen paintings on the wall, he'd be obliterated. He'd never be seen again. And 
George Reichsfelder's sister is actually in this special, and I want you to take a look at it. I'm sorry I didn't write down what episode it is, but she seems a bit of a crackpot to me. She says she helped him put the frame with the Shea Tortoni on the wall above his bed, and then he ODs on cocaine a short time later by shooting up cocaine. And I don't know, guys. And Merlino comes over and takes the painting and all this. It's just a bit much. You're going to put Shea Tortoni over your bed. Are you that stupid? You're going to get all your friends locked up and your friends would have to kill you over it? Was that guy Reisfelder that stupid? And let me tell you a little bit about Reisfelder. He actually fit the description that was given by the guards and he had olive complexion and dark hair. So I do believe Reisfelder was involved. Did he hang it on his wall? That seems a bit much to me. It seems like the gang that couldn't shoot straight, which would be par for the course here in Boston. So I don't know. They end up raiding Gentile's house in Connecticut, and he's by this time in really crappy health, and he's a known BSer. And they say he was a made member of the mafia out of Philadelphia. But from my understanding of the rackets, if you're a made member, that's great. You have the protection of the mob, but you have to earn for them. This guy seemed kind of like a dipshit. What was he taking in? I mean, he didn't even seem capable of running a bookie operation, if you ask me. But they did find some compelling evidence during this raid. And the FBI was convinced, and I think they still are, that Bobby Gentile had those paintings at one time. And they unearthed a hole in the shed, and it was covered. And inside that was a plastic bin. And within the bin, there was a copy of the Boston Herald. And sandwiched in there was a handwritten note of the paintings and their reported street value. And that was found in Gentile's house. So that's supremely interesting. But... Just prior to this, the whole crew seems to go haywire. David Turner ends up killing Lenny DiMuzio. This is what's reported in the Netflix special. And putting his body in his car and parking that car under the expressway at a restaurant in East Boston. And it was there for so very long, it was covered in bird dung. And they misidentified the color of the car because the bird shit on it was so thick. But they find Paul Lenny in the car, shot in the head. They had said David Turner shot him in the head at his house and brought him to Santapio's in East Boston. That's where they left him. Also, Charlie Pappas, who was involved in this crew, had turned state's evidence. And it's believed that David Turner and another associate killed him as well. And on Pappas's dying as a kind of a deathbed confession, he says, I know David Turner did this to me. He didn't say, I saw David Turner do it, but that was his words, his last words. Then Carlo Merlino died of natural causes. So, man, people are just dropping like flies and nobody knows where these paintings are. But the FBI seems to think that they did, in fact, end up in Garenti's house in Maine. Then he transferred them to Gentili's house. And this information comes to the FBI by way of 
Bobby Garanti's wife. My thing is, that could all be a plant. All of it could be a duck, a dodge, whatever, right? Because Gentili's just such a liar. Maybe Garanti knows that. He's got such a reputation as a bullshitter. And he tells the wife to say, yeah, this is what we did with them. And the paintings go in a different direction. And to be honest with you, Garanti and everybody else who had these paintings, this is a $10 million reward. Man, that had to be tempting. I bet you could get these back anonymously. You could call the FBI and say, okay, I'm going to leave this at a warehouse and you deposit the money in my account. I mean, it would have had to have been tempting, $10 million. It's still active today, guys. Also, an interesting aspect of this, David Turner, up until the mid-2000s, was kind of a stand-up guy. But he was serving time for attempting to rob the Loomis Armored Car Company out of eastern Massachusetts with a crew of people, also led by Merlino. And they had been infiltrated by an FBI informant. And the attorneys in this case say the FBI informant was the cheerleader for this and nobody else should have went to jail. But they all got pinched for it with a bag of guns. They were ready to do this job. They were on the way. And the FBI SWAT team, whatever they call it, surrounds them and locks them up. And David Turner got like 40 years and he's a young kid. And the theory was now Garanti was going to use these paintings to get David Turner out of prison. You see, the theory kind of changes a little bit. The first one was we're going to get Vinnie Ferrara out of jail. Then the second one is we're going to get David Turner out of jail. Where is the greed with these guys? There's nobody among them saying, listen, let's turn these paintings in. We'll take $5 million for it. So it goes from get one out of jail to get David Turner out of jail. But where's the money? Where's the money? That's what everybody wants, right? But no, the theory remains that Garenti was going to try to get David Turner out of the joint for the Loomis robbery with the paintings. Well, Garenti drops dead, naturally. So this is like the harbinger of death, this case. Everybody involved is either getting shot in the head or dropping dead of natural causes. So it's inferred in This Is a Robbery on Netflix that David Turner starts to cooperate with the FBI, and that lines up almost simultaneously with what happens in Connecticut with Gentile. It's believed that he provided state's evidence and shaved seven years off his sentence, and now David Turner's out of the federal pen. And so I do believe the FBI's theory all the way up until Gentile, I think. I think the Gentile thing may be a dodge. I also believe that this theory switches so quickly from getting Vinnie Ferrara out of jail to getting David Turner out of jail. That's a bit coincidental, no? But the FBI parades around like, yeah, they've solved the case. I don't think they have. Where are these masterpieces? Where are they? So that's where I am with it. I don't know where they are today because, believe me, I'd be getting the reward for it. If anybody wants to use a private investigator as a middleman in this case, my fee would only be $2 million. I'd do a good job for you, I promise. So in essence, this case is kind of a letdown for me, right? Because remember I told you previously, I referred to the Pink Panther movies. 
you're thinking of art thieves that are going through the museum in black pajamas and jumping over laser beam alarms and all this other stuff, and it just turns out to be a bunch of pug uglies from Dorchester. This is a supremely Boston story, and everybody, I think, when this happened in 1990 was thinking, geez, these are international art thieves. It's just guys running book out of Dorchester who stumbled upon the easiest score in American history. But all those murders, all that intrigue, I don't think any of these guys saw any money. How did the robbers get paid? Because they never sold the paintings as far as anybody can tell. They did all of that for nothing. All those murders that followed afterwards. It's kind of a sucker's bet, right? All right, so that's my take on the Isabella Stewart Gardner heist. They have me all the way up until the Gentili stuff, and I think maybe that was a dodge. So that's where I am on it. I've been wrong before, but I've been right before as well. So I'm going to leave you there, and we'll get on to the next one for you. Take care.